the Bible. Are you intimidated at the thought of reading such a complicated book? Do you find it daunting or delightful or both? Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. The Bible book club, where we read every word of this great book and then study it together. Last episode, the Israelites went from Joseph's favored extended family to slaves when a new pharaoh took over. But oppression can't stop God. So those people, those Jews, Mm -hmm. they are multipliers. They're little bunnies. Pharaoh began to fear the expanding Israelites, and then he took action. First, he orders all the midwives to kill all the Hebrew baby boys, but of course they refuse, those godly women that they were. Mm-hmm. Then he orders all the boys to be drowned in the Nile. He's a very brutal man, that Pharaoh. Moses' mother, Jochebed, was not having that either. So she came up with a plan and she hid Moses for three months and then floated him down the Nile in a little basket to see where God was going to take him. Well, God sent that little baby bearing ark straight to the palace, Pharaoh's palace, and baby Moses became the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Talk about irony. I know. It's really kind of crazy what happened. All right. So here's the setup for this week. We're going to cover chapter. We're starting in chapter like two and a half, and we're going to cover three, two. And I just want you to make you aware that Moses's life can actually be divided into three equal parts. The first, his first 40 years, he lived in Egypt, which was new to me because I never pictured him really at 40. (laughs) Starting. Uh, Yeah, he was, he was there till he was 40. Then the second 40 years, he lived in Midian. And then the third 40 years is actually the time that most of the book takes place. He's leading the Israelites from Egypt to the promised land. He lived exactly 120 years. All right. I want to cover life in the first 40, the first 40 years. Moses is born and then he is raised in the palace. And we often gloss over this thinking, oh, big deal, but no big deal, but it is a big deal. And it is such a big deal that actually in Acts 7.22, which Paul wrote, you can go and check it out. Stephen, a man who was stoned to death, a very godly man, reiterates this. And he says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. And this takes place, Moses's education, because God knew he was literally going to set up an entire nation and he needed to be well-educated if they were going to compete in the world of that day. Yeah, but then I think it's still interesting, like you said, it was 40 years and then another 40 years before he even became a leader. And that's a good He's going to learn, yeah, other yeah, things in Midian. It takes a long time to have <laughs> yeah. the wisdom and experience to become a good leader. Yeah, his first, his first 40 was really education. His second 40, he's going to learn some other things. We'll see. Valuable lessons. So let's talk about what an Egyptian education looked like. Their tradition for a child of the palace would have been to study at this place called the Heliopolis. And it is the most important center of Egyptian learning. He would have learned to read and write from masters of the oldest form of writing in the world. He would have learned all there was to know at the time about math, including geometry, trigonometry, and the ability to measure and plot land. And he would have learned skills crucial to his future role, such as architecture, geography, medicine, and military training, which he is then going to teach to Joshua. So it's basically like a really long it was college a education. Really good education for that time, yes. And very important to the future of the of the Hebrews. All right. 
Chapter two continued from last week. Moses is now 40 years old. We won't learn that from Exodus, but actually from the next verse in Acts 7.23, Stephen tells us when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. So picking up right there. Verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Well, then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. All right, first I want to address this phrase, who made you ruler? This is going to be the first of many Hebrew rebellions toward Moses. One of the exasperating reoccurring themes in the remaining four books of the Pentateuch, also known as the Torah, also known as Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is that the Israelites, they have this repetitive rebellion and this rejection of Moses as a leader. It's frustrating. In Exodus alone, it is going to happen in chapters 5, 14, 15, and 17. And in Numbers, it happens so much that even Moses rebels out of frustration. Yeah. Yeah, it's one thing that I get frustrated about just listening to them yes. grumble against him all the time. And I think about that a lot when I'm in a situation where I want to complain about something. I think, do I sound like one of those whiny, bratty Israelites out yeah. in the middle of the wilderness? Or do I want to just like make this person's job a little easier right now? Right. And he gets it before he even takes the position right here. Yeah. So then the second thing I want to point out is Moses is being called by God. And this is a great lesson for us. One, look at the choice of words. He went out to where his own people were. Implies that he was not randomly out for a ride. He had intentionally gone to observe. Was he just curious or compassionately concerned? Or was he being drawn by God to see his people's distress? Then two, it says to where his own people were. From this description, it is assumed that Moses was very aware of his adopted status and that his heritage was actually Hebrew. He was going to look at his people. And then three, there may have already been some suspicion about Moses's allegiance because he is afraid of Pharaoh, thinking he is sympathetic to the Hebrews after he kills the man. So he looks to see if someone is watching and he hides the body. A true Egyptian prince would most likely not fear killing whomever he wants of a subservient rank. And that was one of the shocking things the first time I ever read Exodus was like, this person, Moses is, you know, you think of him as this godly man up on the mountain talking to God. He killed someone. Yes, he's frustrated. And I want to address that. So here's the deal. When God calls us out, like he did Moses, he draws us out by opening our eyes to something we never saw before. That new awareness can stir up a lot of emotion. In this case, it was the fury Moses felt for the injustice of his people and it overcame him, making him impulsive. And that's why God's going to send him to Midian for a while. Don't they call that in business emotional intelligence? Yeah. 
Do you react in anger and then maybe make a bad choice? Like hopefully not as extreme as what Moses did killing someone, but you know, or do you reserve that um, impulsivity and then make a better choice? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the question is then, how is God drawing you out? What is he calling you to? What kind of emotional intelligence is he trying to get you to um, realize in your life? So what invades your thoughts? What's tugging at your hearts? And uh, what do you need to do to reserve judgment and maybe observe a little bit more? Well, how is God making you passionate for something he may, he may be calling you to? So in this case, God is going to use this incident in, in Moses's life. He's going to teach Moses that apart from God, he can do nothing, no matter what his position or passion. So he's in a great position now. He's like the prince, but he still can't do anything about it. And then God is going to sever Moses's ties to his Egyptian family, move him into the second 40 years in Midian, where God is going to give him a family of his own. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. All right, so side note on Midian, if you listen to season one on Genesis, you'll recognize this name because the Midianites were also descendants of Abraham. After Sarah died, Abraham married a woman named Keturah in Genesis 25, and uh, her son was Midian. And so we have now the Midianites. And it was the Midianite traders, also in Genesis chapter 37, who brought Joseph into Egypt. So the As whole, a slave. Exactly. So here's why we're, <laughs> we're even in Egypt at this point is because the Midianites brought Joseph in and then Joseph's family comes in. So to catch you up on Midian. There you go. Continuing on then in verse 18, when the girls returned to Raoul, their father, also called Jethro, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Raoul asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. All right. I want to cover the wells and weddings pattern here. In Bible Book Club, Genesis season one, we read about two marriages, Isaac's and Jacob's, that came from a meeting at the well with this same pattern. This is the third, a definite sign that God is going to use this to teach us something in the New Testament. If you're looking for a wife, go hang out by the well. I'm telling you, it was like the place to meet women, but they didn't have bars back then. They had watering holes. <laughs> And that's where you went. Don't meet people in a bar. Just, no. just go to no, youth group. No, but I'm just saying culturally, it was all about drinking something. All right, here is the pattern that we have read so far with Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. One, a man travels to a foreign land. Two, he meets a virtuous woman at a well. Three, a discussion or courtship ensues. Love story. Yeah, exactly. Four, she takes him home to meet her family. And five, a marriage is arranged. Now, in the book, I'm going to jump forward to the New Testament. So track with me, because remember I said, whenever you have this kind of pattern that's repeated over and over in the Old 
Old Testament, we know there's going to be a flip of it in the New Testament. So in the book of John, chapters three and four, go read them. Great story. I'm going to summarize. There is another meeting at a well. You have to read it for yourself. But here's the setup. In chapter three, John the Baptist is explaining his position to his disciples. He's kind of like explaining to them why Jesus is greater than he is. And he describes it like this. He says, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. He is the bridegroom. I am the friend who attends the bridegroom. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, not me. He must become greater, I less. And John was saying that the bride, the church, needs to follow Jesus now, not him. In chapter four, the very next chapter in John, Jesus, so we jump in the story, visits a well, not just any well, it's Jacob's well, which again, we are immediately reminded of the Old Testament well visits. This is a pattern. One, a man, Jesus, is traveling to a foreign land. He is also fleeing danger like Moses and Jacob were. And he sits down to rest at Jacob's well, coincidentally. Two, he meets a woman, a Samaritan at the well, but she is not virtuous. She has had five husbands and the man she is living with is not her husband. Three, a discussion or courtship ensues about Jesus providing living water and she becomes a believer. Four, she runs home to tell her whole community of Samaritans about Jesus and they also believe. Five, this results in a new addition to the Church of Christ, a Samaritan addition. And as Jesus, just a few verses before, the story in John was described as the bridegroom and the church is the bride of Christ, the addition of the Samaritans can be seen as another marriage or well wedding. The real beauty in this wedding is that Jesus is more than a bridegroom. He is the living water that makes the bride, the Church of Christ, virtuous regardless of their past. The love story to end all love stories. Exactly. So that's kind of my Bible bender for the week. Verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So see, it's not always bad to groan. It's okay to tell God, hey, we are in trouble. We need uh, we need help. But then when they start groaning to Moses, that's a whole different story. Well, groaning and complaining are two we'll different things. Groaning is out of anguish. Complaining is out of, you know, pity party yeah. stuff. Well, while Moses is developing into leader in Midian, the Israelite suffering increases. And Moses documents that here. But God, the real hero and redeemer in our story, has not forgotten his promise to the patriarchs of Genesis. He is preparing all the players, Moses, the Israelites, and the Egyptians for just the right time. So here's the question. Do you ever feel like Moses? Like you're adrift for 40 years and then another 40 years and passionate, but maybe not useful. Or maybe like the Israelites, you're just suffering too much. It's a struggle to even believe that God is going to redeem your life. So think about that question. And then also think about if these questions are intriguing enough to you and you want to talk about them, start a group. And start listening to the Bible Book Club together because these are really good points of discussion for you to have with other Bible Book Club members. And we're all always in some little form of a desert like Moses where we feel this way. Great to talk about it. All right, moving on to God Calls Moses, chapter three. 
Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, also called Reuel, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. All right, let me tell you about Mount Mount Horeb. It's also called the mountain of God or Mount Sinai. I wish, I know, I wish they didn't give it so many names. It's so confusing. (laughs) The site is traditionally believed to be the southern central part of the Sinai Peninsula. In the middle of the region is this place called Jebel Musa or Mount of Moses. And it is 7,482 feet high. And I've put the map for this in the show notes so you can see this was not an easy. I don't know why Moses was taking his flock so far away. It's a trip, but the, there's these granite mountains there and it, it is really beautiful, a place I would like to go. It is not a coincidence that Moses at this time is a shepherd tending sheep at Mount Sinai. But that's and the, interesting because if he was in the palace and he was a son technically of Pharaoh, would they have put him out as a no, no, shepherd? No, no, no. no, but he's a Midian now under Jethro. Okay. So, so he's left. He's He's tending sheep because he's no longer a part of the palace and now he's married. No, he's got a new family. Mm -hmm. He is in Midian. He's got a wife, Zipporah, and he is part of Jethro's family. But it's interesting that he's a shepherd tending sheep at Mount Sinai in the very same place where he will soon shepherd God's sheep, the Israelites, when they camp there for 11 months. If he only knew that that all his sheep were going to turn into into millions of people, if he only knew. It's also cool that God calls Moses in the same place where God will meet Moses and deliver the Ten Commandments. So he just- But many years later, right? Not many, not very many. No, no, it's coming up. It's coming right now. And I mean, it's he's going to go back and do the whole plague thing, but then he's going to lead them out there. It's only going to take him two months to get to Mount Sinai with all these millions of people. And he's right back where he's going to look back and go, oh my gosh, I was just here with sheep. They're so much easier than people. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. It's like dogs and children. (laughs) Who's easier? (laughs) Verse two. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So our Hebrew slave turned Egyptian prince turned Midianite shepherd Our man, Moses, finally meets his maker. And I love this picture because it kind of reminds me back of even Abraham. You know, God is so gentle to lead us into his presence in a way that like right here, it said he was curious. He just walked over to the bush. Well, fire is a frequent sign of God's presence in Exodus. We're going to have a lot more fire in the future. The burning of the bush without being scorched is an unnatural foreshadowing of what God is going to do in Egypt, unnatural plagues. And it's almost like God is leading Moses with, okay, I'm going to stoke your curiosity about this bush. And then you're going to begin to understand what I can do for you in the future. 
God is building Moses' understanding of him as the God over creation. And like he, kind of showing him mm-hmm. that he he can do he things can, I that can do you this. won't understand, exactly. but just go with me here. He's telling him that nothing is impossible for him, yeah. including the parting of the Red Sea. Because when, when Moses literally hits that wall of water, he's going to have to know God's going to do this. Yeah, and, he's done it before. He'll do it again. And remember, we talked about you know Moses being this like 007 where he just kind of does these impossible things. He believes God. God is making it clear to Moses that he is the God Moses was told about by his people in the past. And he is very much in contrast to false Egyptian gods. And he has to believe him because remember, he's coming out of Egypt and then into Midian. And we we hear that Jethro was a priest, but he wasn't an, exactly an Israelite. He was from Keturah. And so we don't know what mixed messages Moses has gotten about God up until this point. And so he He's meeting right here, the one true God, and God's going to show him, I'm it. Verse seven, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. This whole statement to me is like God preempting the doubt he knows Moses is about to have. Because he clearly says, I have come down to rescue them. Because he knows what Moses is about to say. The point is the time has come for God to act. And God makes it clear who is going to do the work here. He is going to rescue them. He says, I've come down. Then he reiterates that promise to take them. I'm going to take them to the land that will be theirs once they displace the current inhabitants. Well, and all I those also, ites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, all those people. I also think it's cool that he says, I'm concerned about their suffering. Right. Yes. And I think he's heard their groaning. Yeah, he's heard their groaning. But I think it's also true about you. God is concerned about your suffering. Mm-hmm. And whatever it is that you're going through, there's nothing too big for God. And he hears you. Yeah. It's all about timing. And he's going to come do something about it. Just have faith. Exactly. Now note, in case you wonder where these people came from, who are these Hittites, Canaanites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites? In Genesis, we learned that, no, we're going back. So if you're in Genesis, you get this. If you're not, go back to Genesis, you'll get this. Noah had three sons and one of them was named Ham. Now Ham and his son Canaan sinned and they were caught, convicted, and cursed, particularly Canaan. Then in Genesis, Genesis 10, we read the table of nations and we see that Canaan was the father of Sidon, Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zemorites, and Hamathites. These were all the bad guys, several of whom were just mentioned in Exodus. They are the bad guys that the poor Israelites will be plagued by for years to come as they try to take over the land of Canaan. The promised land. The promised land. Verse 9. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So 
Now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Okay, so here's our first doubt. Moses doubts himself. In other words, he says, I don't think I can do this. And God answers with, I will be with you and bring you back to this very spot to worship. Almost saying like, I'm going to bring you back and we're going to have a victory. You're going to worship me because you're going to realize I did this for you. And a lot of times when that happens, you you th- you realize it in the moment, even though you don't know what's happening as it's happening. Oftentimes in my life, I've looked back and gone, oh, that's the promise that he made. And exactly. He and do we worship and celebrate? God, you did this through me, for me, despite of me. <laughs> and that's the black belt move at that point. Yeah, that's exactly. what you do if you react that way. Verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. All right, in the second doubt, Moses doubts his acceptance by the Israelites. So first he doubts himself, then he doubts that they will accept it. Of course, he does that because they already have done that to him. Exactly, that was for In other words, he's thinking, no one else will think I can do this either. And in answer, God gives his name. Now, names in the Bible reveal something about the person. And this name in particular is important for it is also the name that Jesus used to refer to to himself. When he said, I am the bread of the life, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, and yada, yada more. It was also important to the Jews who regarded it as God's supreme name. I went down a hole on this one that I'm not going to take you on because we'd be here for another 30 minutes and you guys are probably driving to work and you can't stay with me for another 30 minutes. So we're not going to go there, but know this for the Jews and a, a lot of history. There has been a lot written about this statement. I am who I am. It, it is written, uh, spelled Y-H-W-H and probably pronounced Yahweh. We don't know if this is the way it was pronounced at the time because the Hebrews did not use uh, vowels. They only used consonants. But the name can be understood in slightly different ways. And here, here's, they're, they're all kind of similar to me, but it can mean he who causes to be or he who brings into existence. And that points to God being the creator. Or it can mean I am or I will be kind of pointing to God's, you know, eternal significance. The point God is making to Moses with his name is this. God is self-existent. He's not dependent on anything or anyone. God is eternal to be forever. 
God is constant today and tomorrow. He is the same. He will never change. In other words, Moses, stop questioning me about your inability. I have this. I am self-existent. I am eternal. I am constant. I am here. I am going to stick to my promise, which is to take you to the promised land. And he says the same thing to you today. Stop questioning. You got this because I've got this and I'm here for you. And I love the picture that this exchange between Moses and God reminds me of. It reminds me of another warrior, one from season one, Abraham. He went back and forth with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. And what every if there time, are only 50? Right, if there are 30. <laughs> and every single time God comforted him, I've got this, Abraham, I've got this. He's saying the same thing to Moses and he says the same thing to us. I've got this, I've got you, I've got eternity, I've got a plan and I'm gonna save you. Okay, that's all good, but I'm still thinking about something you said that they didn't use vowels, they only use consonants. So how did we get Yahweh from something where they weren't using any vowels? Well, that's a long, dark, you know, trail, but that's why oh, yeah, that's they, right. They're that's, driving assume, to work and we don't Most people assume they pronounced it Yahweh, but the Hebrews actually won't say that word. They they replaced it with Adonai because that is the supreme name for God to them, which is so holy. That also, they couldn't though, say that's it. an A, Adonai. Yeah. That's a vowel. Yeah. I don't know. English lessons. Come on, half Bible Jewish girl. Also get. Half Jewish girl. You dig into that one. <laughs> you got it. Let's just keep reading verse 16 then. Go. Assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I've promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer our sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward his people so that when you leave, you will not go empty handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. So God is getting a little repetitive here, but he's trying to reassure reassure Moses and give him more and more details of what he will do. Assuring Moses that really the results are up to God, not him, but God knows what's going to happen, Moses. So just move forward. Moses does not readily believe him and he's going to continue questioning next week. And even after God gives Moses some cutting edge, spiritually powered tools, Moses is still going to doubt until God gets mad. Wasn't this also the promise that God gave to Abraham about the land flowing with milk and honey that he was going to give them this land? So the milk and honey is actually an addition. It's an addition. A little little bit more descriptive. God promised Abraham that they would be as numerous as the stars, as he talked about sands, um, and that he was going to give them up the promised land. But he did 
didn't say the milk, milk and honey, honey thing until he was with Moses. Milk and honey is a new adjective. And is there milk and honey in that land? It was a really fruitful land. Yeah. This is the crescent. Canaan, the area of Canaan. That we talked about before. Yes. And we're going to talk about that when, when we get into Joshua and the tribes are actually divided up into different areas. You'll remember back in Genesis, we kind of covered it with the sons and he talked a little bit about each area. Like one would be by the sea and one would be by this and each has its own you know, one is going to provide the timbers for the tent for for the temple eventually. So each has an area of productivity. Um, but we're getting way ahead of ourselves right now. We cannot jump to Joshua as much as I'd like. We'll like just that man stick too. With Moses <laughs> and trust exactly. that God's got him, but he's got to trust. And he's got to so trust. God's next got week you he's too. Not, he's not going to trust next week. He's no. going to question some more, but he will eventually. Yes. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.